Spotlight McCall, conversations with local luminaries on their inspiration, creativity, and vision. I'm Renee Silvis, and today we're talking with Juan Bonilla. Juan wears a lot of hats, literally. Mostly, the helmet belonging to the Donnelly Fire Chief. Juan is also the Valley County Emergency Manager, the Director of the Idaho Volunteer Fire and Emergency Services Association, and Chair of the EMS Rescue Section of the National Volunteer Fire Council. Juan serves on a lot of state and national boards and committees. Let's see if he knows how many. 24. Are you sure? National and state committees, and I chair <laughs> 17 of them. You chair 17 committees? Yes. Wow. All of this means he's qualified to handle hazardous, dangerous, and disastrous situations. And finally, guess where he grew up? McCall, Idaho. How about that? So we have a lot to talk about. So let's start with that, growing up here and how you, you know, what was that like for you growing up here and how did you become interested in fire? Was it early on? So coming here, we came here in 1978 from California. We is? My entire family. So my mom, my dad, and my brother and I. We, while we were in California, my mom worked for um, Jim and Ruth Haight, who owned 2,100 acres in Valley County. That is now called Blackhawk. Uh, so we, my dad and my mom managed that ranch for them um, and handled all the cattle and all that. Every summer that was our home, and then in the winter we would move to McCall mm -hmm. and live in McCall Manor so we could go to school and my parents could work in town. And then as soon as the snow was off, we'd go right back to the ranch and do all the ranch works for the hates. And we did that till, my parents did that till the nine, till early 90s. So you're originally a ranch hand. Yes. You know how to wrangle animals. Yeah, that's actually a pretty cool part of uh, my life growing up in McCall was pretty much all of the major players in the Cattlemen's Association I ended up working for starting in junior high all the way through my high school years. Mm -hmm. So uh, like the current governor, but it was the past governor, Otter, and Mr. Little, who's now the governor. Mm -hmm. um, I actually rode with them almost every year my high school year, and I actually worked for the Littles. Um, when I was in high school. So you were inspired by leaders early on, mm -hmm. by people who made things happen. Was that, that was influential for you? Very influential, uh, having those types of individuals who had their own businesses and great, great businesses within that were all family run and oriented. Mm -hmm. Lots of growing up, becoming an adult. Adult leadership things that were happening were like constant because you had so much responsibility you know, for the animals you took care of and then all of the other personnel that were participating in a group dynamic that allowed for young individuals like me to see, okay, this is how things work to keep things going and moving forward and everybody living off the land and off the animals you raised on the land. So you got these values early on of respect for the land, for what Idaho is, and to be of service maybe to your community was that a, kind of an early value set for you? Very, very early for me was is understanding how that community effort and what they did for mm -hmm. the community of Valley County because they were making money off the land in Valley County using leased property and doing things within the community that showed that that's how it was done. Mm -hmm. So it sort of that just always resonated too. That's what we I needed to do was be some kind of community driven person. 
mm-hmm. um, that would bring positive effect of, to the community. And did you, early on, did you go into fire, or was there another a kind of an endurance mm-hmm. path? No, so I went straight from high school to the military. Okay. Um, I was in the Navy for four and a half years, and I was uh, on submarines. Wait, that's water. Water, yeah. <laughs> Lots of water. I was on the Atlantic coast huh. uh, my entire tour. I am a Desert Storm veteran mm-hmm. that I got through Desert Storm and Desert Shield. Yeah, so I was on the submarine for three years. In my four and a half year term, a lot, the majority of it was schooling in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a torpedo man's mate uh, on submarines, which really doesn't like give you a job when you get out as a torpedo man's mate, <laughs> but it gives you lots of other things. Uh-huh. One is it just continue to compound that team dynamic as well as leadership building, um, understanding good leaders and bad leaders in the military who was able to have people rather follow and learn and become leaders themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of what we do here at the department is based on my experiences in the military and working with those cattlemen bosses and understanding what the good leadership is, what leadership that needs worked and how to overcome and adapt as the personalities of the people that you have working under you go with that. So I did pretty well in the uh, military. It was an exciting time uh, being on subs. You know, subs is a very, you know, not everybody gets to be on subs. So you have to qualify uh, to be on subs. So you have to be really wanting to meet those requirements of education and training and gather those experiences so that you can... Mm -hmm participate as a submariner. That's sort of things that I've brought here to the department is to the volunteer department that we started out with. Now we're a combination department and that helped. That understanding of the submarine and how to qualify a submarine is really in the same perspective of what it takes to become an EMT or a firefighter. You have to have that drive and that understanding of the education and time commitment and the experience you need to gain to be a good firefighter EMT, same as the positions we held in the submarine. You pretty much have to qualify to be those positions. So that really set the the stage for what we do. The leadership model that I learned in the military that now is going all over the country to this is the type of leadership model we should have in the department is the same as I learned on submarines. I think it's helped our department be this unique department that has a fantastic inclusivity and diversity uh, and our retention and recruitment efforts uh, show that because unlike a lot of other departments that are struggling with retention and recruitment mm-hmm. we've had people who've been here for over 20 years up to 30 years in our department mm-hmm. we have all different types of demographic of individuals wanting to participate and we're not having to like advertise yeah. for that the core of that, when you see the leadership model, what's inside that? What are the values or the attributes? Or So the main thing with our leadership model is, is rather than creating a hierarchy where I'd sit at the top of a pyramid and then we break down everybody below, I actually sit at the bottom of a funnel. I'm mm. the low person on this. It's sort of a reversed uh, way of thinking. As we train and educate everybody in the department and we're looking at that leadership is... We are a membership-driven department, so my job specifically is not only to be the liaison between and take directive from the commissioners and then build the service. It's to listen to everybody from that first day recruit 
all the way down through that funnel to when it gets to us to provide them what they need for funding mechanism, policy, and direction to give them what the, what the boots actually need on the ground to do mm-hmm. the job. Mm-hmm. Um, the other is, is it allows for uh, an empowering of staff to understand that because they have the attributes and skills and experience sets needed mm-hmm. at, those, at those particular times in their career that it's based on what, you're, what you know and how you do it, not what I'm directing you or being the dictator of this is what we're doing. It's you're telling me what the intent is based on your already gained knowledge and experiences mm-hmm. and you just tell me the intent. It meets the intent of the service we're providing and you just do your thing. It's not me constantly over them. So mm-hmm. one thing that's that makes us unique with that that type of model is being the membership driven and also what it allows for is a huge inclusivity factor that allows everybody to participate at every level function all the way to chief. Everybody's voice is the same. My voice is the same as the guy who just came on the first time. you listen to people and people feel like you're you're hearing them. You're respecting, there's respect. And there's a big respect. And there's a big understanding that because of how this model is set up, they get to bring their own attributes and skills yeah. and experiences to the table and create this dynamic of diversity that allows for you still to be your unique self, mm-hmm. but still have an equal say in those yeah. team tasks and team group and overall team dynamic of the department to allow for, I get to be my unique self, but still work in the team setting to accomplish mm-hmm. whatever we need to do to provide the service. So if I'm working with you, I matter. My opinion matters, my skill set matters, and I better get along with other people. Right. That's a huge thing is is we're one big family here. You know, they talk about brotherhood and sisterhood. It really isn't that. It's just because most of us are here a big majority of our time, whether it be on off time or like full-time employees, we're here for a third of our lives. Right. A year we're here Mm -hmm. at the department and sometimes more. So because of that, it's like we're all like uncles, aunts, brothers, sisters. It's just this one big family setting, and that sort of helps with an understanding of of that respect in, in each position that's that people are doing throughout the entire wave of membership that we have here. You really get to know each other. You're with each other a lot. A lot. And it takes a minute, you know, when we get a new recruit, we have to tell them, you know, it, you may feel like you're a little outside at the moment, mm-hmm. but once you start coming and you start participating and you, mm-hmm. we understand where you need to be and you're going through all of the process, then you just fit right in. And that one thing is allowed for when we're vetting those recruits to come on, we're looking for individuals who have that particular different attribute or skill or experience that's going to add to our team dynamic. So when we're looking at an individual in our department, it's, we don't really care what demographic, you're just a person. And if you meet the right skill sets and attributes and experience that we're needing mm-hmm. to grow, mm-hmm. you're, you're in. If you can do that, pretty much if you can do the job, you're in. It doesn't yeah. matter anything other than you're a person who can do the job, you're in. And, and that's what I think is different in the fire service. With fire service, what I realized over the last 14 years of being chief is... The problem with recruit and retention in the United States in Idaho is we're looking at the same demographic with the same set of rules of this is the one type of firefighter or EMT we need when we should be expanding our horizons and saying 
there is a whole group of individuals and demographics in our own communities that we're not touching and we're not saying and making them aware we need you as volunteers. For example, who, who could you be looking for or what kind of skill set or attributes might you expand into that maybe people don't think about? So it's there's many different aspects of being a firefighter. So it's not, and we're, we're even responsible for this type of thinking in the beginning was we need a firefighter who can only go in houses and do these specific set of skills. And then we realized, wait a second, that's like in a fire, three or four people. What about the other 15 or 20 people that are supporting those people? The people who are at the ambulance who only do rehab for those people going in and all the other members, or the people who don't want to go in but have all kinds of skill sets that can do stuff outside the fire or exposures to that fire. Or and, later, like the trauma the, response. The trauma response. It's all these mm -hmm. things that were like, there's no demographic for that that's specific to firefighting. There's uh -huh. so many different jobs just within the firefighting realm that you could have 70-year-old people, male or female, running a monitor on an exposure of a fire. They're still part of the fire team mm -hmm. dynamic. They're just not specifically going into. So once we broke that rule of we only looking for one type of firefighter, mm -hmm. There's not that many of us who want to actually go into a fire. Who, who can run up a staircase run. carrying 70 pounds of, of gear. <laughs> gear. Like that's, what, that's who we think about when we think about a firefighter. Right. Is that really fit, strong guy holding a hatchet? And you're saying it's way bigger than that. Way bigger. And when you, when you throw the factors of small community mm -hmm. fire departments who are really one of the biggest foundations for the community in all types of things because we participate mm -hmm. in everything when you look at that that even expands who can participate because mm -hmm. we have all of these non-emergent functions that need to happen as well yeah so that's not just a, a firefighter who goes in that's people who can help with community events with the school with you know anything that's happening in our community that we could help like the parades the fundraising all of these things um, helping the Chamber of Commerce with whatever they need and providing stuff and just mm -hmm. people it mainly. Um, with the, the schools? What do you do with the schools? So with the schools here, we do so much. So we do CPR. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We do the, the Fire Prevention Week. We do a fire science education class for fourth grade. They come over and we tell them the fire science and behavior of fire and they go through you know a whole year of learning what fire is what because we live in a a fire place which mm -hmm. is the wildland urban interface of fire uh, in wildfire so we're looking at a better under having them better understand what that is now so when they get older they understand what it means to have defensible space a fire adaptive community uh, and start when they're young so when they become adults and they're these areas it's not something we're having to educate an adult in. They've already been educated and understand, well, I should clean up my trees or my yard or move my wood. And how did we come up with that idea? We did a, a smoke detector program back in the early 2000s, and it was like, we're going to so many houses that they don't have proper smoke detectors. How do we do that? Well, why don't we do, when we do fire education at the school, tell these children the importance of a smoke detector in the rooms and all the areas that are needed how you should check them every uh that was sneaky you started with the kids started with the kids so what <laughs> happened was is we realized 
we were running out of smoke detectors that we had a whole closet full <laughs> because parents were coming in and the, and the story was you'd have parents come in saying, I am so tired of my child not leaving me alone about my smoke detector. I need some smoke detectors so he'll leave me alone. So it was, oh, the light went off. If we do that with other things like becoming fire adaptive and have a wherewithal of the wildland urban interface we live in, maybe those kids can help the adults now and when they become adults can have a better understanding of what Mm -hmm. wildfire is and what you need to do to try and make it more preventable. Um, That's been exciting for us when we we built that program and it's just grown. Now they're doing it in other, uh, and starting to do it in the McCall and Donnelly school districts in those areas Mm -hmm. with some other uh, types of fire trunk is what it is. Uh, education, which does that that's fire science and behavior, so they understand. And what's great is the kids love it because they're like little scientists, and we light things on fire. They light things on fire, and they see how things burn. We do things like we set a bunch of mat sticks with a little cardboard house over hills and stuff like trees, and then we show them, well, if the wind blows here or if the wind blows here, or if you remove some mat sticks around the house and you burn, oh, the house is still saved because we were able to create a fire adaptive area for that house. Mm-hmm. So their understanding, mm-hmm. even though we're doing the, you know, they're getting to play with fire, that's just of an excitement for them. They just understand that they know why it's important. I suspect you do more community involvement than people realize, and that's most of what you do. Yeah, so probably my biggest idea of coming on to the department was giving that community effort. Not just Mm -hmm. at the emergent level, but all levels. Because I feel we are a very strong foundation and infrastructure for the community. Not just Donnelly, but the entire Mm -hmm. uh, county. I think that because of what we do out and about that's non-emergent. When you look at, you know, if we were to look at 1 through 100, 99% of what we do is non-emergent community effort. 1% is emergent runs with incidents. We need a whole facet of individuals to continue our community effort. It's primarily like even just fire and EMS education and all those kinds of things that we're building here. People know you and it builds trust. Like you're a familiar face in the community. Mm -hmm. Um, When there is an emergency, I'm imagining that really helps. Like it's these guys we know coming in to help us if there is an actual emergency. Right, we know most of the individuals, even a lot of the short-term rental individuals, they know us because mm-hmm. they're either involved in some community effort that we're involved in, so we're there, we're, mm-hmm. we're constant. We're our own ambassadors, every mm-hmm. member is here, and that they see what, not only do we have this diverse group of individuals with all these attributes and skills and experiences, but we're involved in the community, and that is a huge importance to all of us here. Everybody here that's that's staff now were volunteers before they were full-time staff. You mentioned when you came on. Can you talk about when you came on and how you started, how you came on? Because I'm beginning to get a sense of how it was your interest in community and leadership and something with fire and your experience with the military. But I'm I'm curious how all this came together that you actually chose to come back. So in the military, I got married. Her family homesteaded here in 1898. This is Mandy? Mandy. So right now we have seven generations 
now included in mine of individuals who've lived in Valley County. In your so, family. In the family. In the combined so family, yeah. We're here and it was like this was always oh, been home. This is home. Okay. It's always been home. Because of that I was here. So as soon as I got back from the military uh, after Desert Storm when I got back, it was we gotta live in Valley County mm-hmm. somehow. Well, I did a lots of things, you know, I built docks, I did excavation Mandy worked at this school and all kinds of other places. And I had a fire background because of the military because the last couple years I trained with the volunteer military base. Uh, And it was, uh, so you did duty and you got to stay at the station. And they taught you how to do structure firefighting, not just onboard ship firefighting. So you learn how to do structure firefighting. So the past chief, who at that time was the assistant chief, Mark DeYoung, mm-hmm. said, we're getting older in Donnelly with volunteers. We need some younger guys. So they talked to my father-in-law. It's like, yeah, Juan's got all this damage control stuff. He knows everything about fire. Talk to him. He'll probably volunteer. So um, they got me to volunteer in 96. Uh, so it was a couple of years after I got out of the military. And then I, I haven't left since. It's it, That's just started me in... In volunteering, I volunteered for ten years, and then the opportunity for captain came up as training officer, and the leadership at that time was like, "We need to make Juan the training officer," mm-hmm. uh, and then it just went from there. It so just made sense. Everybody. I just, I just ended up bringing my. There was sort of a cultural shift of this volunteer to trying to work into a combination department, which has the full time and the volunteers, and it sort of was a fit. So I had these ideas as a volunteer, and I had all this education and experience of leadership and how to you know, build something, and we built a district. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. When I came on, we started building the district because we were new. The Donnelly Rural Fire, fire District. district mm-hmm. From the Donnelly Volunteer mm-hmm. Firefighter Association. Mm-hmm. So we're able to build a district. Um, so that's, that's how I got started. Um, being involved and then it was right away apparent on the department that one I was missing that team camaraderie that I didn't have for those couple years being in the military this was the way to get that team dynamic back in my life and then be able to utilize my experiences to help the department grow you know, it's interesting, like, fire departments are a blend of, your, I'm, I'm learning from you now, of the volunteers, we, we kind of know this, there's a, a volunteer department and the professional. And it's interesting that this is one place in the world where that really blends pretty well. And how do you work with that? How do you work with volunteers and professionals? So we're all professionals, because we're all trained to the same level. Oh, even a volunteer is considered a professional. is the same level. Um, okay. There's just some that are fortunate enough to get a full-time job, gig at it, okay. uh, is the way we look at it. And, and they our, can stay overnight. <laughs> in, right. In our department, um, our, our hired staff is actually there to support the volunteer staff, not the other way around, so that they don't have to have that radio on 24-7, 365. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those emergent runs that are, are minor, the staff can handle, so we don't have those guys doing every single run. Um, that's the premise of ours. I will tell you that when you look at a volunteer chief and you look at just a career chief, the hardest chief to be and the hardest administrator to be is the combination. 
because you have to deal with all the career aspect yeah. and you have to deal with all the personalities mm -hmm. and participation of the volunteers. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot to mesh together. So some things we did here at the department was we understood that everybody has to be trained at the same level. Mm -hmm. And uh, we don't want a separation between the career staff and the volunteer staff. We're all still one membership. And one thing that helps with that is, is all the people who are hired are from the our volunteer pool. So that it's always, you started out as a volunteer here, now you're a career staff. So it's like, you just got, you're just uh, an enhanced volunteer, volunteer. <laughs> pretty much. So it makes me think though, the volunteer pool is pretty large, I'm imagining. And that goes along with the community outreach. If you have a large pool of volunteers, you have people in different places in the community to support your community outreach. And that's exactly how it works. So we have uh, now we have 13 individuals who are on staff uh, career and we have 27 individuals who are volunteers. Okay, so more than double. More than double. Double volunteers, mm -hmm. yeah. We need those because yeah. there's at least four to six people per run. And with all the run volume alone, we, we need the volunteer pool. And then hmm. when you add on all the non-emergent and community mm -hmm. effort we do, the 13 people cannot handle the run volume and the community effort. Mm -hmm. uh, we can barely handle the run volume without volunteers. So in rural areas, it is almost a must to have volunteers on the career department. So mm -hmm. when you look at the nation as a whole, um, we probably outweigh career departments four to one uh, as volunteers mm -hmm. in combination departments because one is cost effective uh, two is, is it provides better a dynamic for the community and understanding to be fiscally responsible and provide the service to the constituents. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, this is a norm. Uh, just with our department that makes it different is that inclusion and diversity. And when we got into that, it, was, it wasn't hard for us to understand because we already had a lot of different demographics involved in the department at an early stage. So when we brought up and we did this little exercise when I became chief and it was here's a stack of people who are applied and no longer on the department here's us that applied and still on the department why aren't these people on the department mm -hmm. so when we understood well it was one lack of inclusion it was us it wasn't them as the reason so then right that first day mm -hmm. we understood we need to change that model mm -hmm. so the inclusivity is the key, I think. Leadership is number one. Inclusivity would be number two. Uh -huh. Leadership allowing that inclusivity at all levels and functions of the department. And then what it did was allowed for automatically this diverse group of individuals participating, which in turn, our retention was at all-time high and still is. And it was allowing for recruitment at the same time because everybody was like, I want to go be on Dolly Department because you can do all of these things and function at all these different levels. You love this. You're just you lit, you're kind of lit up about this, like inviting people in, getting more volunteers. Who can we have on our team we haven't thought of yet? So someone like me, okay, here I am, a middle-aged white woman with like my physical abilities are, aren't really that great. I could come volunteer for the Donnelly Fire Department. I have something, Definitely. some skills, something I can do where Definitely. I could be a volunteer. What would you call me? You'd be a volunteer member. If Once you got your fire and your EMS at whatever levels. Okay, I could get my EMS, my emergency medical service. It's a license. And then you're registered with the state and with national mm -hmm. EMTs. So you could get that here. 
No cost to you. So you provide those trainings. All the education is provided for free to our members. So somebody with a little bit of time could come volunteer, get this really cool training, and hang out with you guys. Fire or EMS. Yeah, so we provide college-level education here. Uh, we've done it for quite a while. We worked with CWI to start our okay. paramedic program, mm -hmm. and they didn't have to go to CWI. We did it live stream here. We're working now with ISU to get people their uh, at least a minimum associate's degree in fire science. You can do that here through live stream. So you provide instruction here at the Donnelly Fire Department for these licensing and credential programs. Mm -hmm. So that people can get that, and we pay for that. We have so, a whole school right here in Donnelly. It's a whole school of secondary education. We are an education hub. We have a training, training facility here that we put in, mm -hmm. and we host about 120 students from around the state that come in here, including our own. Uh, members. So people come here from around the state for training. For training. That your department puts on. Yes. Okay. And then we allow for the secondary education in fire and EMS. Mm -hmm. And we are also a CPR training facility. Mm -hmm. um, we handle about 1,500 uh, CPR licenses and first aid cards. Mm -hmm. And we have about 75 CPR instructors throughout central Idaho that are associated with the facility. We are an education hub as well and training hub as well as a fire and EMS. So that just adds to that infrastructure need for the community. For example, an EMT class right now that was specific to the, anyone in the community um, for free. All they had to do was commit to being a part of some emergency responder agency afterwards. So that's even like search and rescue, mm -hmm. any of the three departments. Um, and they got their education for free. And next fall we'll be doing that for a Firefighter 1 course as well. Um, you can have no experience, come in, do the education, and then see which department you want to go on uh, to participate. So if someone's looking for something to do or a job or something meaningful, a way to have impact, and maybe they're not really sure, this would be a great door. Excellent for door for career exploration if yeah. that's something they'd really like to do. This year, uh, every year for the last few years, we've done senior projects mm -hmm. with the people in the high school. And then this year, we have actually a senior cadet program internship with Heartland High School. Uh, we have currently five students who are juniors, mm -hmm. and they're learning and career exploring EMS and fire. It's been the whole calendar year thus far, and we'll finish at the end. And they're all excited because they're going to come back as seniors, and then we're going to have a whole new group of yeah. juniors, sophomores, and freshmen participating. They're going to be the leaders. Um, and this is the alternative school? The, the Heartland yeah. School, yes. Awesome. And it's really exciting because mm -hmm. it's sort of paying forward mm -hmm. um, with the Heartland because Mrs. Rickard, who started the Heartland, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. started it for my little family um, <laughs> so, that my, so that my wife could get her uh, high school diploma. Nice. So this is just me paying it forward and saying, mm -hmm. let's take some individuals who are having a rough time Let's bring them and show them some leadership qualities, some understanding of community, yeah. and uh, maybe that's just the kick they need to understand how important it is for them, one, to finish high school, mm -hmm. and two, to be a community-driven person. You know, one thing I've always liked about you is that you're so calm and you're so accepting, and you always say yes when I've asked you to do something. <laughs> so I'm imagining for some of these kids, that's really welcoming and they feel comfortable with you and they're willing to come in and try things out that they might not normally do. That's exactly right. And 
Uh, what's been fantastic is I have full support of all the membership for it. They help when the kids are here. Mm -hmm. I get them for two hours a day for two days a week, uh, Mondays and Wednesdays. That's I a lot. actually go pick them up, bring them here, and take them back. Uh -huh. And they got uniforms just like oh, yeah. us. They they fit in the mold. There's no like separation between the recruits and us. They're the same, look the same. They're mm -hmm. learning the same way we did, and I can see that sort of spark of them really hungry to want to participate even further so mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a very good thing I think all departments should mm -hmm. be doing something like this mm -hmm. um, and allowing for that and our goal is is even if they don't become fire and EMS it just gives them an opportunity to understand what the community can offer them and what they can offer the community as well as helping them with school is uh, you know the stories with a lot of the Heartland individuals is They've been let down by so many adults. Um, department's thing is, is we're not going to be one of the adult functions that ever lets them down. We'll always be here. One thing about being a volunteer is once you get some, a few skills and attributes for fire and EMS, you can go anywhere in the United States and participate in a volunteer department, and you're automatically part of that family. So, I mean, we have one right. senior, one senior um, cadet who did their senior project here, and we're working on getting him, because he's going to U of I next year, on the volunteer boarding system for Moscow Fire. So nice. they'll get to go live in the fire department, do some calls, room and board is free, and still participate at U of I. Wow, now that because is Because that's awesome. their program. So yeah. because he was an, played an effort here for uh -huh. a whole year, uh -huh. he's going to get to he apply. He has a home in Moscow. So he'll room have the board. home in Moscow. For the entire time he's at U of I. Look out, Juan. This could really take off. <laughs> so it's pretty exciting. We're excited because yeah. he's going to get to participate that way and still keep his fire and EMS skills yeah. up. And it's, he's already noticed because he's an extremely smart uh, young man. He, he already understands that this could always be something I do, one, to help my community mm -hmm. or fall mm -hmm. back on. You know, I love that you're teaching these skills, not just the EMS skills and the firefighting skills, but the people skills and leadership skills to so many people in so many different ways. The ripple effect in the community is something we'll never really know how much it really ripples out, but it's significant. It's extremely significant. We see it a lot. Um, you know, as much effort as we do just at our own school here, our own mm -hmm. little school here, mm -hmm. the friendships and understanding between what yeah. we do and what we're helping the school with. You know, they're really appreciative. We're really appreciative they let us participate. I, I think the biggest thing for leadership for us and for, that everybody should follow is leaders are really, we're meant to lead in a certain fashion or form, but leaders are really here to build other leaders. And I've taken that to heart, learning mm -hmm. that at a very young age mm -hmm. with, you know, the cattlemen's and mm -hmm. with the military. To build The best people. leaders build people to become meet their true potential and be leaders so here is i've taken that opportunity here to everyone all the way to the one day recruit my my objective and then all the community outreach is to grab as many people as possible and give them an idea that they can be leaders and give them a direction to be a leader so for me to be a leader is just understand your surroundings and the need of your surroundings okay. and then taking those individuals and, and helping them get to their goals or their niches if you would and, and put make sure they can have those doors open for them. So like with my 24 committees 
I now have stepped down this year from all the committees because I'd been there for 10 years. Well, my thing is, is once you've been there for so long, it's time for new leadership. So for the last few years, all I've done is build people up of different demographics throughout the country and mm -hmm. say, as I was pulling out, mm -hmm. making sure the door was open for these people to pull in and now become the leader with the same, some of the same skills and attributes and experience I have, but with their own set to build what I did and mm -hmm. continue to build upon it, but have a all wide open view of here's some things that are, are not even in Juan's purview. Yeah. Or understanding but we're going to develop implement those because it's the same direction so that's what I did for the last mm -hmm. few years so now I've sort of sat back in these mm -hmm. committees I'm no longer chair and these guys are now running and they're all younger or you know not necessarily younger but they all have this light of I've taken it as far as I could for 10 years and mm -hmm. me saying to the other leadership who always hangs on to those this is what leaders should do I'm sort of trying to teach them, this is what leaders should do. We build these guys and these leaders up and we put them in place. And we step back because not only do leaders build other leaders, mm -hmm. but good leaders, I feel, know when it's time to step back and follow the next leader. And that's what I'm doing, not only there, but here. Um, I'm coming to, you know, within seven years of my retirement. And it's even more important for Donley Fire to understand that they have a leader who is willing to accept this next cultural shift of when these older senior firefighter and EMT start retiring, because we're going to have four in the next seven years, that it gives them an opportunity between now and seven years to build mm -hmm. what they're going to be inheriting. And it gives us that time to make sure that the right people are in place based on what they want to be in for those goals. So it allows for this huge understanding that the model that we've built for leadership is working because it is membership driven. It's all about boots on the ground and what they need to do their job. It isn't about what the chief needs. And I think the distinctive thing that I'm hearing is it's not prescriptive. You help people identify what's new, what they have to bring to the table, to the party, to the job that is fresh and unique and maybe cutting edge. You're respectful of the change, of what's new, of what other people have. You're not telling them, you have to keep doing it my way. You're actually encouraging them to do it their way. Definitely. That's important. That is huge because when you look at my generations versus these next generations of individuals coming in, they learn at a much more rapid pace. They have yeah. all these opportunities to get information. And we're like, we need to change the, the old school way, if you would, to this new school way. And we need to start adapting to it now because if we wait till the end, then mm -hmm. it's too late. And then there's decisions and processes that have been placed that these people are going to have to inherit that are going to actually make their function harder to achieve. And it's inviting. If I'm a little different, if I've got a different take on things, I, I will feel invited by someone mm -hmm. with this perspective. And you, you talk a lot about being inclusive. I will feel included. Very included. What's nice is you're, everyone's opinion matters. Right, wrong, or indifferent opinion, we're going we're gonna to vet it. Mm -hmm. Because it could be the right way to do it. I mean, there's always new things in fire and EMS when it comes to how to deploy and how to get the equipment out and use the equipment. And there's not one way. 
So if it still achieves the same outcome, but it's more productive and less work, why would we not change to that new culture? So I want to follow that thread into our geography, our location, the mountains, the valley, the altitude. And I'd love to hear about like, emergency management and what kind of emergencies you handle. And what do people need to know? Like, I bet you see people do really stupid things out there. And I would just love, right? Okay, Juan's grinning at me now. So what, what kind of emergencies do you handle? What, what do we need to know that we could do more of or less of? So with the emergency management function, which is my second purview in the mm-hmm. county, it's really an all-hazards mitigation. My specific job is I'm sort of the liaison between all of the agencies Sheriff. and all types of hazards, like the roads, okay. the county, the cities, the fire departments, the law enforcement. You're the center um, of the hub. I'm pretty the center Funding mechanisms, granting, that's going to be either state or federal funding. That all comes through my office, as well as any time that they need a hazard mitigated. Okay. Um, I'm sort of the liaison between that agency and the county or city, depending on what jurisdiction they're in, and then the state and federal government. So I have to be well-versed in how all that works. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really played into everything I've done over the last 14 years as chief. I have all the networking all the way to D.C. and back. You've built I relationships. I have huge relationships yes. over the last 14 yeah. years of, of these things. And uh, when it comes to like a huge hazard, we mitigate fire, wildland fire. Every major wildland fire that needed to be mitigated has been in the Dalmay District. So two months after I became chief, I was already in my first fire. So building those relationships mm-hmm. with those responding agencies, both state and federal, have just expanded over the last 14 years. So much so that a couple of years ago when council was having issues, the governor calls and says, I need an emergency manager because they don't have one in, in Adams County. Could you please jump over and help them out because they have no idea what is expected. And Juan said yes because he always says yes. Because I always say yes. Yes. So (laughs) I went over and helped, and I'm I'm sort of that subject matter expert, if you would, Mm -hmm. when it comes to hazard mitigation between local jurisdictions and state and federal. So what's really nice is is it's a better understanding for us. It makes it easier for the county to give me that responsibility because I have so much of that networking and understanding with everyone. So are these, and what I've kind of hazardous situations are we, like, like wildfires? So we, we have that. wildfires what, for what sure. Else we have uh, flooding that we've dealt with over the last few years we've had oh. where avalanche has taken out road systems. And, and there's also like the awareness levels of like the coronavirus. I get updates every day. I send them to the oh. hospitals and I, they have an understanding of things, you know, mm-hmm. like we were, we were just told yesterday that the president has made a national disaster declaration for this outbreak so that people can prepare. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm involved with all that. Weather events is another. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm in line with the National Weather Service. I get automatic updates. I start pushing those out to let people know in advance that, hey, it's a big weekend and here's the type of weather system we're going to be seeing. So be prepared for these types of things. Um, so there's a lot of mitigation types. The other is is building an all-hazards mitigation plan. 
Um, that involves all of the stakeholder agencies in the county. And that's something you're working on? That's something we're working on right now that allows for, here's some mitigation efforts that each individual district type needs or agency mm -hmm. needs. And then when funding becomes available, because it's in the plan, they're able to allot and put and put in an application for that. The other is, is the emergency operation plan, which I'm in charge of, which is, okay, we have a hazard. It's specific to this kind of hazard in the emergency operating plan, and it gives us sort of a guideline of how who's responsible for what and things that should be happening. So, right. so if you get a new person in place or you haven't done one of these in a while, you can just reference the guide, and it sort of helps the agency, me, and the... So if there is a, bit of a really big emergency, it's a seamless, controlled, right. um, you got it. Right. And that's how it works. And... We do like a lot of, for fire, for instance, we'll have pre-season trainings and, and discussions so that one, all the agencies can meet everyone before they're meeting on an actual incident. And then we do scenarios based on mm -hmm. whatever it's flooding or roadway or fire and they understand, okay, this is what we would do. This is what we would do. Here's what we have for resources. Here's what you would have for resources. And then utilize us. Um, fires in the summertime. That's something you get ready for, a big fire in this it's area. It's a year-long, it's a year process. You're always preparing. So our Valley County Fire Working Work, which I happen to chair for the county, is probably the state is always copying what we do within our fire group. Um, and either now other states, counties are looking at how our fire group is because we do have such an open line of communication and cooperation with all of the stakeholder agencies that it allows for a better understanding of preparedness and education for not just us, but the constituents that we're serving. So with that, it sort of goes along the line of everything I do in life. After 2007, not knowing anybody, I was like, okay, we need to develop some type of thing to, if this happens to any other chief, including me, I need to know who the other players are, what their responsibilities are, what they can and cannot do. They need to know mine. That's what we've built in 14 years. So mm -hmm. we have a very strong fire working group as well as a local emergency planning committee that my assistant chief actually chairs. So it's not just me who participates in all kinds of county functions. It's pretty much all of my senior staff and the majority of my volunteers are part of committees throughout the community. We get that it because deal that's, the kind, of leader. that's because the kind of leader you are. You want people to know how everybody to have a little bit of education and, and to, I can't be at every meeting so yeah. I'd like to know well what's happening at the local Delegate economy it. thing uh, give me some insight and what's happening at EMS levels at the hospital you know I can't be at everything so everybody's well aware of what's happening in the community here at Donnelly because we're so involved with everything that mm -hmm. we may have to participate in. So back to that question of what do people do that you don't like or is kind of stupid uh, or that we could do. Do you see things right. that you want to tell people, please don't do this or please do this? So our biggest disappointment, I guess, would be when we go to an incident where someone's hurt or potentially hurt or even a fatality that was preventable. Um, when we look at we could have taken all of these steps to, I mean, we might have had the same outcome, but at least we took the steps to make it preventable. Mm -hmm. um, those are the big ones that really stick out to, to us is, well, if we'd have pushed this regulation or 
if we'd have had fire marshaling do this a little bit differently or if we educated our health population to this is some steps you can take so you don't get this or that happening or you know utilizing the car seats that kind of stuff we wouldn't have that incident be so severe that's a big one for us uh, when it comes to people doing crazy stuff, you know, it's, the fire is a big one that always sticks out because there is such a huge percentage of the fire that happens on the valley floor that is human-driven. Um, lighting fires when they really shouldn't because of weather event that's coming. Or if you lived here long enough, you know anytime, depending on the time in the summer, from 1 to 3 o'clock, the wind's going to kick up. So you really shouldn't have a fire going at that time. I don't know how to instill that into people who love to burn. Don't light a fire between 1 and 3 in the summer. That's what I just right. heard. Yeah, because the wind's going to kick up more than likely because that's okay. just how it happens. I've been to a couple scenes where I look at the person and I'm like, why were you lighting just dumbfounded? Why did you light that fire right now? Uh-huh. I mean, the wind's at 10 miles an hour. Of course, the fire traveled to your neighbor's house. Of course it did. There's no rhyme or reason why you should have done it. Yeah, there's a few of those. The preventable ones are the biggest. Right now, the talk of the town is the carbon monoxide and short-term rentals. And those are all preventable by just some safety measures and, and occupancy limits that I hope that the county and the cities understand that we're pushing for those new regulations to help us with those efforts. Too many people in a vacation rental. Mm-hmm. Too many. People cramming their whole families into one house that really isn't big enough. Right. Okay. And then not having the proper safety mechanisms in place. Carbon monoxides, fire detectors, mm. or smoke detectors, and then uh, flammable gas detectors if they're using propane or anything like that. So you like to see these devices in vacation rentals? Yeah. What was the last thing? I've never heard of that. Flammable gas detector. So if you're using a propellant such as propane to like whatever appliances you have, you should probably have one in your home. Um, So what it does is if you do have a leak, the detector picks it up and says you have a a limit of that's potential for a fire or explosion. Where do you you get one of these? You can get them on Amazon. You can even go to a couple of websites through the vendors. Like I think it's All Seasons. Um, They give you one for free for right now. They're like 60 bucks. They last five years and then you have to replace them. But every home that has that type of fuel that has propane should have should have a flammable gas detector. Okay, you just said it on the podcast one. Hopefully, we'll prevent some future runs here. (laughs) That's what we're hoping. The (laughs) the preventable ones. Okay, carbon monoxide. That's something we don't hear about. It's not glamorous. We don't really hear about it. We just had twenty-five patients in one home. Four were pretty severe. The, the levels parts per million were, were very high and the exposure time was extremely long. So a, a detector would have detected that level that high relatively early. And then we would have been over there to say, yep, you got an issue. We need to move you to another house. And there would have been no issue. You know, and this is an area where we have house parties and we have vacation rentals. People need to be educated about this. So, mm-hmm. okay. So emergencies, fire marshals. I understand you were fire marshal of the year. What's the t- what is a fire marshal? How is it different from a fire chief? Great. So what a fire marshal does is, and in some departments, the chief is also the fire marshal, but we're, we're very fortunate that we have our own fire marshal. Um, I actually started out when I was a training officer also being the Donnelly fire marshal. I am the only fire marshal in the state of Idaho who has built a city using international fire code called Tamarack. And one thing about a rural fire marshal is 
you have to not only learn the entire book, unlike City of Boise Fire Marshal, who they have multiple fire marshals who learn just certain particular parts of the book, like hydrants, residential, commercial, sprinklers. We have to learn it all in a rural community because there's only usually one of us. So that was a good education for me to understand the makeup and construction of buildings. Working with the state fire marshal's office to help me and educate me on how to be a fire marshal. So we have pretty much authority over the code and interpreting the code for the district and then setting forth conditions based on what you're wanting to build and going through the PNZ and the commissioners saying these are the conditions that would be need to be met for safety. So a marshal operates on like a government le- level, writing code, writing legislation? Right. So what the fire marshal is, is we use the code that's already established, that's adopted by the state, uh, and then the amendments to that, and we use that as our code. If we need to help as codes come through, we can give input to say, hey, this particular code doesn't make sense. We need to rewrite it. Could you please look at that in legislation as well as if particular interest groups are wanting to reduce code, we can go to the state legislature and say, this is why we shouldn't based on these facts and figures. And So a marshal uh, operates on a county state level, whereas a fire chief runs the department. Fire marshal, so our fire marshal, for instance, runs on, I am the authority having jurisdiction as chief. The fire marshal is my delegate to interpret code based on my direction as the authority having jurisdiction to establish that code in what we can promote and advocate for so that not single family dwellings, that's commercial like Tamarack and some other type schools. So we go in and we make sure that because they're gonna be used not only, not for just one particular resident, but for multiple participants, that they meet some kind of safety requirement. So, I mean, it deals with detectors, sprinklers, all kinds of things. And it seems like there's a lot of overlap. Like what the marshal does, the chief can do. So you really do wear a lot of hats, kind of at the same time sometimes. Yes, like with the marshaling, for example, like today, our fire marshal is going to Tamarack to review a building and garage with the state fire marshal, who is helping and aiding our fire marshal, based on my direction. (laughs) He's sort of my liaison uh, the district, he's the district liaison for me and my position. He understands where we need to be, what I'd feel comfortable with, and then he just does his thing. So it's one of those things where he understands the intent. I understand his intent. He goes, does his thing. I don't micromanage the fire marshal. So he'll give me a reference of here's some things, or they want to change this. Can we change this? Here's what my thinking is. Generally, I go with whatever the fire marshal agrees with because they tend to be more well versed. Because I can't do, I can't like be in that book all the time. So I I go based on my experiences of being fire marshal, his new experiences with the code, and then we sort of okay, this is what we should be doing. And generally, we try to make it very fair to the developers. And that's just one of those things where they are also a constituent, mm-hmm. and we are here for them. So we really ever, I don't think I've ever said no to what they want to do. I've just said, okay, here's what you want to do. Let's look it up and see what we need to do to meet safety standard and go from there. So we're not like a police or we're like, okay, let's see what we can do to make that work for you. We try not to inhibit growth in any way. And you want to prevent problems. That's the bottom line. That's the main thing is that preventable thing that we can establish 
so that we're not going and saying, well, if we'd have done this or that in the fire marshal's realm, mm -hmm. maybe we wouldn't have this type of incident. You know, I heard that edge in your voice when you said prevent. Like, this is something you think about. And if you have any disappointments, was the word you used, in your job, it's what could we have prevented? That is the biggest job. So it's not us going to the scene and doing that. That is one job. Our actual job is to make it so we never have to go to that incident. You would that is love our it. job. You would love to put yourself out of business. Yes. If your job could be preventing emergencies and fires, that would be a successful job. We would have done our job, yes. Brilliant. What an irony. What a beautiful <laughs> irony. <laughs> do you guys still do puppet shows? We do. This is so unique. So the Donnelly Fire Department. So many. So we started the puppet shows probably 10 years ago or even later. We actually sent some people to Boise in Napa who had like these huge elaborate puppet shows. You got puppet show training? And we had puppet show training <laughs> for a few people. And then they came back and they came back with some scripts. We wrote some scripts. At first they were all like fire and EMS related to like how to escape your house, having an escape plan. You know, the stop, drop, and roll. My character is usually the smoke detector, so I'm Hector the smoke detector. And it goes over how the smoke detector works and where they should be and if it doesn't work. And uh, we have a few where the fire marshal plays a role and he's like doing a home inspection for people and making sure that they have everything in line. And then there's a lot of just education ones that we've done. And then we did things that were fun, like we used to do ones at the school where it was like Christmas themed, and we all were had Christmas type puppets and had like a still a safety message or a, a public announcement, but it was geared towards whatever the holiday was. Mm -hmm. uh, we did that quite a bit. We just did one for the library when they had their big open house this year. We brought Hector smoke detector back. And we did some uh, fire education on, you know, escape plans where you should meet and things that you should have in the home. And then talking about Hector the smoke detector and what his role was. I love it that you do this. And I think you really enjoy it. Oh, it's fantastic. Having the kids just like enjoy the puppet show plus having an understanding of, oh, they actually learned something with the puppet show. Mm -hmm. uh, it's great. And then we hand out a lot of like smoke detectors. There's always mm -hmm. swag. When we go and we hand out fire stuff. department swag. Yeah, fire department swag. You know, I love it how I just love how you're so involved with the community, especially the kids at the schools and the puppet shows, just taking away a little bit of the intimidation factor and like you're their buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Is if you could if you could tell people one thing or if you want people to, to really know something. So I guess the the main thing would be is is all our fire departments here in, in Valley County are volunteer and combination and will probably always be volunteer and combination we are always looking for more volunteers even though we have career people we as first responders cannot function without volunteers participating in the volunteer i hope that discussion shows that it's not just about being the firefighter or the emt in the back of the ambulance it's a plethora of community involvement and ideas and wanting to understand better the community needs. So there's so many different facets that you could fit into as a volunteer for any of the departments. Mm -hmm. If you have time or want to make some time, this would be a 
huge opportunity to give back to the community and get more community understanding and just be part of that great infrastructure that makes Valley County home. The community's invited. Every day. Thank you, Juan. So I'm Renee Silvis with Spotlight McCall. Thank you for listening today. Now, go and find some inspiration.